Thanks for pressing play, and welcome to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the authentic dialogue podcast, or some people call us an oddcast, for business leaders, marketers, and category designers with a different mind. Now, most of us are interested in having a long, successful, value-creating, and even fun career, but it's been said you can't be it unless you see it. So today we go deep with one of my favorite people in Silicon Valley, a living legend, Bruce Cleveland is here. Bruce has had an over 40 year career in Silicon Valley, and he's pretty much done it all. Built companies, technologies, categories, and brands. Worked on some of and with some of the greatest executive teams and entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. He's been a successful investor and he's a best-selling author. As a matter of fact, his book, which is called Traversing the Traction Gap, is one of my favorites, and I recommend it to all entrepreneurs. Most recently, uh, Bruce stepped out of being a VC to partner again for the second time with legendary entrepreneur Tom Siebel, who's also been on this podcast, to design the enterprise AI category and to lead their company, which is called C3i, to a $10 billion IPO, raising $651 million back in 2020. Also, you should know, Bruce and I have been friends for years, and we have done some business together, but we were once fierce rivals. You see, when I was young, my first big job in tech when I moved to Silicon Valley was I was the head of marketing for an early-stage CRM company called Avantiv, and Bruce was the head of marketing for uh, Siebel Systems. And for the record, Bruce kicked my ass upside and down all over Silicon Valley and crushed Vantive and everybody else in the CRM space when Siebel won the client server CRM wars, only, of course, to have uh, Salesforce come along and redesign the category around the cloud. But that's a conversation for another day. The interesting thing is when you have your ass kicked as hard by uh, someone, in this case, Bruce, as I did early in my career, you learn a lot of valuable lessons. So by the end of this dialogue, you'll gain radical new insights into how you can do legendary things in your life and career. Now, speaking of that, the problem with most business content, if you think about it, business content, entrepreneurship content, marketing content, and the like, is that it's pretty obvious. That is to say, it's not that helpful. For example, right now, there's a hustle porn star out there preaching that the secret to success, you ready for this? The secret to success is to do, quote, one more, one more call, one more push, push up, one more email, one more this, one more that, blah, 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 blah. If you're willing to do just one more than the average person, you'll be successful. Well, the stupidity of this is obvious. And the problem is today we are drowning in the radical obvious in the marketing, entrepreneurship, uh, and technology world, bordering on the radically stupid. If you start paying attention to little memes and little quotes and all these things that a lot of people post out there, you'll realize how stupid obvious they are. And consuming stupid, well, makes you stupid. More importantly, isn't it interesting that every breakthrough in life, work, or play, by definition, is non-obvious? That's why we created Category Pirates, for the radically non-obvious leader who wants to create exponential breakthroughs. 
And that's what's made Category Pirates a top five paid business newsletter. Every week, we feature stories, frameworks, and research into what it takes for you to design and dominate new categories and create the future of your choosing. Don't miss out. Go to CategoryPirates.com today. That's CategoryPirates.com and claim your free seven-day trial. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. Bruce Cleveland, welcome back. Uh, it's great to be back, Christopher. I miss you, man. <laughs> I um, I miss you too. I I enjoy these discussions that we have. I think they're provocative and uh, hopefully entertaining for people. <laughs> well, nobody <laughs> nobody listens, so we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> and you know, I, I I you know, obviously a lot we want to talk about. You've been a part of some legendary IPOs, some legendary companies, legendary categories. Want to dig into all of it. But before that, you know, the, the thing that I think that you did that was really fucking cool, you know, while you were in venture, you took the time to write a book, Traction Gap, that is very well respected. And it, I hear about a lot and entrepreneurs really appreciate it. And so not only have you sort of had the operating entrepreneurial mega successes, venture mega successes, you also made a pretty big contribution with that book. Thanks. I, um, you know, I put a lot of effort into it. You know, I think we talked about before the reason I wrote it was I, I began to grow pretty weary of really, really smart people um, not making it, right? Their company's not surviving for a variety of reasons. And they, they all tended to be pattern matched against those reasons. And I was also not happy with the venture community in, in its entirety because I don't think it was honest with a lot of these entrepreneurs as to why they weren't getting investments, et cetera. And I kind of wanted to demystify those, um, those issues. And so that let me do the work that I needed to do because it took quite a bit of work. Uh, just as you know, writing these books, they're not easy to do if you want to do them well. And so um, the purpose and the objective of the book was to share with entrepreneurs, hey, here's some things you could possibly do to significantly um, enhance the probability of success. And, you know, we only get one shot at this life. I felt like I, um, I owed it back to the entrepreneurs of the world who take all the risk as to what I saw from my vantage point, both as an operating exec and as an investor, as to why I thought things weren't working for the vast majority of startups and what I thought the venture community could do a better job of. Well, you did a great job. And I think you did what legendary um, thinking books do. You gave us a, a lens. You gave us a new lens, right? So by sort of saying, hey, these are the spots that a lot of startups lose traction. And here's where you gain traction in in the evolution and the growth of your company over time. Um, you know, from a one of the most uh, successful, been there, done that kind of guy's uh, in tech. Um, and so I just want, you to know, I hear about your book all the time. Entrepreneurs tell me they, they read it. Uh, I have some entrepreneurs that say that they heard about, you know, um, my books from your book and, you know, so that, that's been a big contribution. And I, I don't know whether you're so inclined, but this, I'm leading to an evil plan here for you, Bruce, <laughs> but, um, you know, you may, you may want to think about more of that because, um, you've got a lot to contribute. Well, thanks. I, um, I have, thought 
about, I have not committed yet to developing an online course to complement the book. Uh, there's just so many things that you could go into um, in in a book. I thought I actually didn't have a lot to say. I thought it might be like about 30 pages that turned into uh, 350 pages that we had to pare down. But um, but it turns out there there's a lot of things that I didn't put into the book, uh, anecdotes and sort of other thoughts that I had about these different phases of companies that I thought I might be able to do more successfully or more perhaps more effectively um, as a course. The issue is, is that if I commit to doing that, I'm going to do it. And um, right now I've, I've got a number of other things kind of pulling my attention. So I appreciate the encouragement and uh, perhaps next year I will, um, I'll actively engage in that process. I think that'd be a good idea. And uh, I would just say to you as somebody who is clearly, I, I learned a little while ago, Bruce, that if, if you're lucky and have a, a legendary career, you get three stages. There's the Lucy or Luke Skywalker stage where you get identified You you as a high potential person. You start going for it. And if you're successful as Lucy Skywalker, you get to become Obi-Wan. And if you're successful as Obi-Wan, you get to become Yoda. And you are clearly Obi-Wan. And one of the things Obi-Wan needs to do in the modern era is contribute uh, thinking around and by writing books and digital courses and all that shit. So get on it, would you, Bruce? Uh, okay. <laughs> all right. Ass kicking, take it. <laughs> now, lots I want to talk to you about. It's been a long time. Um, since we last spoke, uh, you've achieved something that very few CMOs ever do, which is uh, two IPOs. And in both cases with Siebel Systems and now with C3i, category designing IPOs, that is to say, in both cases, the company that you helped take public uh, was the company designing and dominating a new category and then delivering quite a bit of value for shareholders and customers and obviously um, uh, colleagues and employees. And, and of course, with C3i most recently on the sort of bleeding edge of what enterprises are actually trying to get done today with artificial intelligence, ML, et cetera. And so um, maybe just tell me a little bit about the C3i experience and, and what creating that category and that company and forwarding AI in the enterprise has been like. Yeah, I think this is uh, one of the benefits of having a CEO who understands and believes in category creation is that as your job as a CMO becomes much more um, it, I don't know about easier to do, um, but at least there's support in doing it. And the objective that Tom Siebel gave me at C3i when I had initially called him up and said, hey, I'm thinking about leaving venture and um, and returning back to operating. And is there something that I might be able to do for you? One of the things he said is, look, we need to build a new category. And I want the category to be named Enterprise AI. And we want to own that. So, I mean, that's a pretty good setup, right? If you're a CMO, that's, uh, that's kind of dangling a pretty big carrot. And for somebody like me who thinks a lot about this, just like you do, around category creation. Uh, from day one, we set about uh, setting up the uh, the notion, defining what enterprise AI would be, defining the strategy and tactics to develop this enterprise AI category. And, and when we first started, but this was no November of 2019, when I did the digital marketing analysis of how many people were searching for the term enterprise AI, it was really not not, you know, even on the the radar. So that kind of gave us the incentive saying, look, 
nobody owns this. Let's see if we can go after it. <clears throat> there are a few companies using it sporadically, but nobody that was actively engaging in, uh, in looking at how they could build and own this. So we, <clears throat> we went through the process of thinking about what thought, thought leadership things we could do, what kind of books we could write, um, what kind of, what are the other tactics, which is, you know, the storytelling around what is this thing, how great the world could be from a world as it currently exists to a world as how it could be. And so the, um, starting back then, November of 2019, uh, we began to design a lot of material around enterprise A and we began to measure it. And I think this is a really great thing about digital marketing, which, you know, as you and I were discussing earlier, um, really wasn't a thing uh, 20, 30 years ago when we were really engaged in our CMO activities in our prior companies. What I thought about was how could we, you know, win the uh, the hearts and minds of the community? How could we, we generate awareness and interest in this new category? What would be the attributes of the category? And then how could we, as a company at C3AI, how could we own the conversation? And uh, And I think this is, um, I think this is critical for a lot of companies. Um, you know, I, I think this, this podcast specifically came about as a result of a conversation on LinkedIn around the use of sales development reps, SDRs, um, doing demand gen. And what we found, and what I'm, I'm glad that Tom recognizes, is that you can spend a lot of capital, um, both human and financial capital, on demand gen activities. But the truth is, it's going to fall on deaf ears. I mean, the it's going to show up in email that doesn't get responded to, SDRs, cold calling with no response. Um, until you're willing to invest in the development of a category and then pro- producing the content that's provocative, interesting, uh, and uh, and relevant, you're not going to you're not going to get the results that you really want out of that. So with C3 AI, we started out thinking, well, what kinds of things could we do? Well, we did. Um, we had some resources available to us that not a lot of startups have. Um, and I would say that at the time that I entered, uh, C3 AI was around a decade old, and so it had some additional financial resources. So we could do cable TV advertising, for example, on the news shows. That's not really accessible to most startups. But we did a lot of other things. We did uh, we did webcasts. We, did, we wrote books. We did a lot of other things that are accessible to most startups. And we began to measure the results of, of the term enterprise AI. And lo and behold, it began to, to take effect. Um, we did a lot of work around, um, and when I say work, uh, I mean, Tom did a lot of work in terms of be- making himself accessible to the press, uh, making himself accessible to conferences. And this was even during, this was during COVID. So a lot of these things were done virtually, right? They weren't done person to person or person to multiple people in a conference, in a physical conference. They were done via, um, via the web. And so I, I think maybe it's even more of a, um, a, uh, a nod towards why you want to do this. And we were able to measure how much interest, how much that term was being used and began to build off of that, finding people who shared it. Um, we did a lot of, a lot of work. There was some things, some ideas that we took <laughs> from some other smart people. Uh, we built a glossary 
of terms for for enterprise AI. We defined, we wrote a we wrote a paper on what is enterprise AI. We we broke it down. It had actually it was a paper that was written and it was in a PDF. And so we disassembled that into chapters that were scannable by Google. So that way all the terminology began to show up uh, in organic searches and experimented with that. So it was very deliberate from day one that I joined. And as we, you know, as we went through the, the several years that I was with C3I before I retired, um, we measured this, you know, weekly, um, if not daily, to determine how we were doing. And uh, this was done with basically very, very little, um, very little, um, you know, what we would call demand gen work. In fact, almost none. So um, uh, I'm pretty confident that all your work, defining work around things like Play Bigger uh, that we're doing, talking about category design, um, I be, I'm a not not only was I a proponent during my you know venture investing years, but I was I'm a huge fan of it as the you know uh, CMO of a pretty successful company um, recently. So I I not only wrote about it, but I actually followed the principles. And I think we're pretty successful in doing it. I'm not sure if it'll come up now if you did a search on Google and uh, type in enterprise AI. But organically, we were, uh, when I left, um, the, uh, the, the number one or number two. And we had a snippet that was also included in there. So I'm, I'm very confident in the principles and I'm confident in the, in the tactics that, uh, that drive this behavior. Amen. Hallelujah, Bruce. So category design works. It does. Don't, don't leave home without it. Don't leave home without it. And you've now done it as a operating executive twice at Siebel and at um, C3AI. And, uh, and obviously you, as a venture investor, invested in many category creating, category designing companies. Um, and so I'm curious, you said something very important there. It seems like much of the marketing and entrepreneur world is obsessed with, quote, demand gen, demand generation. And what they really mean when they say that, of course, is demand capture. And we have a scenario where there have been startups who have spent as much as half of their venture investment dollars trying to capture demand on Google and Facebook, give half their money to Google and Facebook. They do the analysis around the search terms, they try to get, do SEO, paid and, 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 and earn, earned, and they mm -hmm. go after this thing and they end up running out of money or, and or just getting crushed. You made a conscious decision to own a term, enterprise AI, that really wasn't being talked about. You created the category. And this is something I talk to entrepreneurs and marketers about all the time, which is, when you do demand capture, which is what most people mean when they say demand generation, you're catching demand someone else created. But you and Tom and the team made a purpose, purposeful decision to create value, to create demand around the term enterprise AI. And to most people, going after something that doesn't exist that you have to create from nothing sounds like craziness. Yes, unfortunately. I mean, it does. The issue I have, and I think that you're pointing out, is that a lot of these companies, they're, they're being 
either they themselves have put the burden upon themselves or their investors have put the burden upon themselves to show some kind of demonstrable evidence that they're doing something. All right. And you can, if you invest in AdWords, you know, and or a variety of other these um, email, et cetera, you can show that you are producing something. Um, the problem with that is the market, it doesn't really know about what you're trying to create interest or awareness in, or at least it shouldn't. If you're just, if you're just, uh, if you're trying to do something new, we're, we're either a new product offering or a new company. And I would argue that, um, that these concepts are relevant, not just for startups. It's very relevant for new product offerings from existing companies. The, um, the problem is, is that <clears throat> these tactics, uh, this thought leadership, storytelling, um, a variety of other, what I would consider to be uh, category creation work, it takes a while. And it's not going to produce immediate results. And a lot of the investors and the teams, they realize that the cash is burning, et cetera, and they're trying to generate immediate results so that way they can reach some sort of value inflection point and uh, and be able to then generate another infusion of cash or capital into the company. So the scary part, I guess, of this is that the 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 process of category creation can take a year or two, and you are um, not getting the you know the huge sales that you might expect, et cetera, that uh, that you would want to show evidence of of demand. Um, the, my, I guess my advice would be you can do some demand gen, uh, while you are building your category and defining the category and inserting yourself or establishing yourself as the thought leader, the category leader. Um, you can do some demand gen while you're doing it, but I would say do a very little, um, there's just not enough investment made. And I, I, I think somebody actually reacted to one of the comments I made that it's not, up to the CMO to be the the um, sole executioner of all of this. It's the team. It's the CEO and the entire team have to come up with the thought leadership concepts um, and to be willing to personally themselves invest in the creation of the category. The, the technologists, the CTO and the VP of Eng, et cetera, they need to invest in it from the standpoint, uh, from a technological standpoint, you know, not a, a lot of marketing words, but a lot of technical words. The CEO needs to establish the company as a credible leader, a credible thought leader um, in the in industry. Marketing needs to help execute those tactics. It's not up to marketing to come up solely on, on its own what what the category needs to be. And I think a lot of companies and a lot of investors put the burden on top of the CMO to do this. And I think it's a, I think it's a big mistake. I mean, some can, um, but in many cases, the CMO's job is to basically help to organize the thoughts, uh, create a taxonomy for them, and then to jointly develop with the rest of the team the tactics that are going to be used to build that category and everybody needs to needs to be quote in on it and aligned and saying that look this is going to take 12 to 18 months to build this this category that that we're coming up with and understand that 
while that's happening, we're not going to be doing a lot of quote demand gen. We're not going to be spending 90% of our budget on AdWords and you know email, et cetera. We're going to be investing in thought leadership and storytelling and and writing, you know, thought-provoking, intellectually interesting content that makes us considered as the, if not the market leader, but at least one of the market leaders in this new idea, new category that we are um, proposing. Amen, hallelujah, brother. Now, everything you just said there is unusual today in the enterprise space, particular, particularly. And uh, it's even more unusual for, let me just say, um, uh, native analog entrepreneurs and executives, because many of them don't understand anything you just said. Many of them don't get category design. And the other thing they don't get said, don't understand is you essentially by Tom wrote a book. He actually came on this podcast to talk about that book. It was called, uh, um, uh, uh, digital transformation. Was it not? Right. Yeah. Right. And that was before even you joined. You leveraged Correct. all of this content. You created content that was actually valuable content. You created new languaging. And this is another big unlock that most people don't understand. The company that creates the language wins. Uh, you wrote about this stuff. You, 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 you took a thought leadership approach and you took it direct to prospects, direct to the market. And so you built a media company, if you will, a, or let's just call it a digital content company on the front end of the business to get from a marketing perspective, what we would call the most top of funnel you could imagine, which is you're actually creating funnel with your point of view thought leadership around this new category you're evangelizing called enterprise AI. But that is that strategy that you executed is almost 180 degree different than most enterprise companies today. Yeah, I agree. And I think the, um, you know, I think it's, if you really kind of look underneath the covers as to why this might be the case, it's it's clearly because the um, everybody feels under pressure, everybody being the management team and the investors are under significant pressure to demonstrate tangible evidence that there is appetite for your product or service. And so where does that pressure come from? Well, for the, from the investor, let's call it a venture capital um, general partner who sits on your board. That doesn't, isn't always the case, but that's a lot of time is the case. That person is under pressure by the, by his or her partnership for them to generate significant results. Um, the rest of the partners who aren't necessarily involved in the company want to see results that, hey, this thing is working. And so uh, we can report back to our limited partners who invest in us that, oh, you know, Acme software is doing well. And the way, how do they evidence that? Well, they evidence it with revenue, you know, customer growth, revenue growth, et cetera. The problem with category design is that you don't get that immediate feedback right away, right? You don't get the, you don't get that kind of evidence. What you, what you get is um, sort of in a, a, an indirect form of evidence and that that's that comes through this well what it what how are you positioning your company are people searching for that term are you being invited to conferences are you part of a are you doing keynotes are you doing part of panels they're they're really um they're 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 proxies for revenue and proxies for revenue it doesn't go well 
with uh, with investors. It doesn't go necessarily well with the management team, who's very concerned that they're not generating immediate returns or immediate uh, customers and you know immediate gratification. Um, so it it takes some chutzpah to be able to uh, to to do this type of work. And that's why when I originally started this conversation with you, I said it really, really helps to have a CEO who understands and values why you need to do this. Um, and I've, I've both done it, I've done it twice personally, uh, Siebel Systems and C3AI. I've, um, I've seen it done by some very successful companies like Salesforce, Marketo, you know, a number of other ones that I've been either directly involved in or close to to being involved in. And it, I always kind of scratch my head as to, you know, the evidence is there in the market. Um, and yet investors and management teams alike don't follow these, you know, these well-tread path, this well-tread path of, of, um, other successful entrepreneurs. And I think a lot of them just attribute their success to, well, you know, they had, you know, uh, you got Mark Benioff, great charisma. So you, you know, that's how that happened. Well, Mark does have charisma, but he's also pretty damn smart <laughs> about how he, you know, chose to, he didn't create the CRM category, but he created a new one that was even bigger, which was the cloud CRM category. Um, so, and then he created cloud computing as a category when everybody thought, you know, that was nothing. It was a joke. I remember Larry Ellison commenting, what's this cloud thing, right? Now, now look at Oracle. So I think it requires um, some bravery on the part of the management team and the investors to say, we're going to invest in, I would give it, you know, 12 months. And we're not going to look necessarily at the revenues per se, but we're going to look at the a proxy. And the proxy is how many is, is the search term for the category name that we've created? How is, how's that doing? in the market, you know, how, and, and, you know, the, um, you know, sort of the, this proxy for revenue, it can, can the company keep its, its burn rate lower? That is not hire a bunch of salespeople, not hire a bunch of, of marketing people, but basically put the onus on the mark on the management team to capture the first 10 notable companies, first 20 notable companies and wait until that happens, um, and then use those acquisitions, those customer acquisitions, to then and use the word notable. So that means companies that other companies aspire to be. Use those um, relationships to then promote the category to confirm or affirm that this category exists. That smart companies are buying into it and making investments into it, in order then to use that as now fodder for your digital marketing campaigns, your your demand gen program. And until that happens, don't be compelled to uh, waste your very valuable um, cash resources into these programs. I think it, it just does take a, I don't know about a leap of faith, but it does take bravery to do that. Thank you for that. Uh, that's been my experience and you've demonstrated it uh, multiple times. And it does take, because there is a leap, right? You have to say, okay, enterprise AI, we want to own that. We're going to we're gonna imbue that with tremendous meaning. We're going to cre- create the languaging so that people have, and this is a big miss for a lot of people. You can't describe new things with old language. 
You can have some older language, but if there's not new language, there won't be new thinking and it won't be viewed as a new category. Um, and, and so you did all of that and from nothing now create demand for your definition, your design of what, um, what enterprise AI is. And to your point, I was just looking on um, LinkedIn. If you type category designer in LinkedIn and you click people, what you see is there are 40,000, I'm reading this, 40K plus decision makers from your search for category designer. Now, are all of those going to say category designer? It'll probably, it's probably going to pull some other designers of this and that and the other. So it won't be 100% pure. But let's say it's 50% right. That means there's 20,000 people today on LinkedIn who, as part of their title on LinkedIn, call themselves category designers. Well, category design we created in my kitchen. <laughs> right. And, 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 and so this is the other thing I was talking to, um, you know, my, my brother from another mother and, and uh, co-author of Play Bigger, Al Ramadan, about this the other day. And, and we're on a personal level. And I think this is something people don't realize about category design. Category design in a lot of ways is the ability to create a different future for yourself and for others, right? And Correct. if you're successful or when you're successful, you get to live in that future that you created. And there's nothing more of a like legendary happy mind fuck in life, at least for me, to go, hmm, a bunch of us sat in the kitchen and drank beer and talked and invented category design. And 40,000 people on LinkedIn say they're category designers. And so we now live in a world that we created, said it a different way. The, the present that we enjoy was once a dream. And that's really what legendary entrepreneurs do. You know, when you and Tom and Pat in the beginning had this vision for CRM, there was no CRM. Right. And you literally, and you know, others helped and we did a little advantage before you destroyed us and, and ruined my life and career, which I'm still <laughs> in therapy about, by the way. Thank you very much. Um, uh, actually, we should probably talk about that, how, how, how uh, competitive enemies become friends. But my point is you, Tom, um, uh, uh, Pat, the whole team created CRM. And now you wouldn't think of running a company without CRM. And then you did it again with, well, today, every enterprise has to have some kind of an AI strategy. And so this is leading to a big question, Bruce, which is you yourself with your collaborators at these two companies created different futures, and then you got to live and benefit from the future and the value that you created for others and yourselves in that future. And so how does it feel when you're staring and you're going, you go, your present was once your dream? Yeah, well, I think the way that you're putting that, I mean, obviously it's it's um, pretty satisfying <laughs> on the one hand, uh, and it was also really, really hard, right? You uh, you work, you know, I read about work-life balance. I, I, I'm jealous of people who can achieve that. So uh, I never was able to do it. Um, we work really, really hard to do what you're talking about. Um, and, but, and you point out in your book, um, you know, 76% of the, of a category or markets profits inure to the market leader. 
And so in my mind, I think in Tom's mind, especially, why do anything different? Why, if you're going to do something as hard as creating a startup, um, where the odds is, you know, we write about in our books, 85, 90% of all startups fail. Um, if that's the case, then you better be going for the 76%, right? You better create the new category and live in that. I, the, the benefit of having done that is um, it makes it makes all ongoing efforts of everybody else who joins the company or who participates in that industry, everybody benefits from having having done that. And you know the you may or may not get any personal recognition for for this. You know, I mean, I, the the the, um, uh, the amount of of uh, promotion that you get for, you know, personal promotion from it, it might, might be pretty de minimis, but the, I think the spiritual satisfaction of having, uh, participated over the course of, you know, four decades in the technology industry and being a participant and both contributing to these kinds of, of, um, of category creating efforts, you know, not the least of which was Oracle, by the way. Um, the it's, it, it does feel like you have helped, you know, you've helped in a, a considerable way in, you know, not particularly transforming human lives necessarily, although you give people employment, et, et cetera. Um, but you have made a contribution to humankind um, by helping businesses operate more successfully and um, giving people, there are, you know, employment benefits that, that do in your, um, for the companies that were, that live in that category or that benefit from the category. So it, it feels pretty good, you know, and I, I don't know if you could, um, uh, you could do lots of different things with your life. And I feel very fortunate that I was able to participate in a small way in, in a, at least two or three of these things that have, um, I think, been fairly transformational for, uh, for humankind. And I agree with you. Absolutely. In spite of the fact that you kicked my ass and made me feel bad. Um, and the interesting thing is what uh, you and Tom and the team did at Seabolm. That was long before category design existed. Right. You, you guys were intuitive category designers. And so the reality is you've been on the front end of thinking about how technology companies and specifically B2B tech companies can create radically new, uh, radical new value with radical new categories. And today there are hundreds of thousands and millions of people who use the categories of software that didn't exist prior to you saying, ta-da, CRM, ta-da, enterprise AI. Yeah, I think the um, that uh, that is also pretty satisfying. You don't want to build something or spend all of your effort and energy trying to build something that, that nobody uses or disappears into the, you know, into the history books. Um, if you're going to invest the amount of effort, uh, your soul, your, your family, it's, if you put the kind of effort in, um, to, to creating something new, you, you want to make sure that it survives and thrives. And I think that was kind of to my point is that I, I got really, um, sour on the notion of startups failing most of the time when in reality a lot of them um deserve to actually win they were great great ideas etc um the problem is and the what the you know the term i came up and i used with in the book is that people need to not just be technology engineers they, do, they need to become market engineers of which category design is one aspect of uh, of market engineering so that was kind of the the epiphany 
I had in when I wrote the book and when I thought about your, you know, your book uh, and books is this concept of market engineering. And I'm, I'm confident Tom would never describe himself as a market engineer. Larry Ellison wouldn't, Mark Benioff wouldn't, you know, Zuckerberg wouldn't, whatever. Um, I'm, they don't use that term, but it was a term that was useful for me and sort of in my thought leadership <laughs> decision about how I, I would position the book, which is that people do, they need to be more than just product engineers. Product, product is table stakes. I mean, it has to be a great product, has to be innovative and useful, um, whether it's a consumer product or a, a business product. It needs to be useful. Um, but if you want that to be successful, then you're going to have to either um, innately be a market engineer or learn how to become a market engineer or find a partner in crime in your company who can be that market engineer and help you if you're the CEO or help the team um, do the market engineering work, the storytelling, the thought leadership work, the category design uh, as aspects. And if you don't do that, um, the likelihood of your company um, being successful, that is surviving, is pretty low, right? I mean, that's that's the real issue. And so all that hard work that you did, all those hours, the weekends, the vacations you gave up, all that work you did, you'll you'll either get acquired, you know, by a company for some maybe maybe it'll be some um, you know subset of what went into the company, or maybe some small multiple, but it certainly won't be the quote home run that you would hope for. And, um, and, and, or it'll disappear entirely. And, um, and so it just seems to me a tremendous waste of capital. I don't think that we need to accept the failure rates that we see in the marketplace, um, from the startups or new products, again, new products from existing companies. We don't need to see these. We don't need to accept this. We just need to learn that if we're going to want those things to be successful, we have to teach ourselves um, how to become a market engineer and, uh, and do this work. So, um, to me, these are just now observable facts. They're not, I don't think it's a subjective opinion any longer. I think it's an objective opinion because the evidence is just, uh, the, the preponderance of evidence is just too great. Huh? It's interesting you say that because people want to argue with me online. I get invited to debate, product uh, bigots and brand bigots at various things all the time. Um, people love to tweet out bullshit like the best marketing is a great product. Um, you know, one of the biggest pieces of bullshit in our industry right now is, in my opinion, very broken mental scaffolding is PLG, product-led growth. It's like, no, no, products <laughs> don't lead growth. On that. <laughs> That's fucking stupid. People yeah. lead growth, you dumb fuck. Yeah. And anyway, right? So there's just a lot of this sort of a mentality that's out there. And and sometimes, you know, when, when we talk about category design, people think, oh, well, it, uh, you know, we're against great products. We're saying that it's all about the category design. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. If you love the product, the greatest gift you can give it is a legendary category design because to your point, don't you want your invention, your creation, this thing you slaved over that's incredibly technically elegant and does all this awesome shit for people? Don't you want that thing to make the biggest difference, to have the biggest sales and the biggest impact in the world? Well, if you do, you have to teach the world how to think about it, why it's valuable, what problems it's solving, why addressing those things matter. And if they understand those things, they will value 
your um, magical carbidingulator in a way that they never would if you didn't help them understand what the fuck it does and why it matters. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the, well, think about it. How many schools can you go to for um, to learn product marketing or product management? Um, the only real school is a school of hard knocks. And and you, there are a few. There there are emerging a few graduate study programs that, um, that actually. Uh, I think Carnegie Mellon has one, um, but I don't think they focus anything on this market engineering. I think it's because it's all, these are all primarily technical companies. Um, the uh, It's all focused around the technology. And I think that's that's the mistake. Closer to it, I think, are the B2C companies that engineer. I mean, think about it. They're selling you know stuff that's not really differentiatable. <laughs> um, so I think they're better at uh, at doing category design um, or certainly um, making uh, something emerge out of, out of nothing. Um, you know, they, they, they call it, you know, some people focus on brand, but I would argue it, it starts with the category design. Well, um, that's the other cult that we rail against. There's the product cult and then there's the brand cult. And, yeah. you know, people in the brand cult don't understand a simple fact, which is, if you're coming to visit me here in Santa Cruz and I say, hey, uh, let's go out to one of my favorite restaurants and you say, OK, that'd be great. And I say, yeah, it's called Alderwood. What's the likely question you might ask me? What do they what, what do you eat there? <laughs> what do yeah. they serve? Translation. <laughs> what kind of restaurant is it? Yeah. Translation. What category is it? Right. Right. And, and if it's an Italian restaurant or in this case, it's well, I'd call it a California cuisine steakhouse. Uh, or if it's a sushi restaurant or whatever, it's very different. And sometimes people say, oh, I don't feel like sushi tonight. Well, they're saying, I don't want that category of food. Maybe I feel like Italian tonight. Mm -hmm. Those are different categories. And so the point being, of course, uh, uh, the brand only matters if you understand what category the brand is in, because you may or you have an interpretation about that category. I'm not interested in minivans. I'm interested in muscle cars. Right. But so it doesn't matter what the brand, how awesome the brand of the minivan is. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's a fundamental thing that people just don't understand. And it's interesting to me. So you think now that this understanding of category design and, and, and how to, you know, this radical idea of market engineering, which to me can be summarized by you can compete in an existing market or you can actually engineer your own, right? The, mm -hmm. However, whatever words you want to use to some people, it is a radical fucking idea that they could enter a quote, zero billion dollar category. There's no market today. They could evangelize it with a point of view. They could do the thought leadership that you did at uh, C3 AI that you did back in the Siebel days um, when these words didn't mean anything, when there were no budgets in, in, in the IT organization or anywhere else for CRM, for enterprise AI. And all of a sudden, there's multi-million dollar budgets for things that, you know, five years ago, nobody had even heard of. Yeah, I actually find it um, somewhat tragic because it's so obvious this is <laughs> what it takes to be a, uh, a successful company that, uh, that investors and entrepreneurs aren't all over this, all of them. Some are, I mean, obviously some are. Um, but to your point, the, um, the amount of energy and effort that's put into category design or market engineering um, is relatively low compared to all the other efforts. At least the evidence suggests that. 
And um, yet, if you were to point out the companies that we all know about, you'll, I think, find for the most part, maybe not in every industry, maybe not, you know, if it's maybe if it's um, pharmaceuticals or something, you know, I don't, I don't know. Well, you know, we can have that debate. I don't spend a lot of time there. But, um, but the bottom line is that if you're not willing to do this, you know, I would expect you to, you know, to, you're, you're not going to recoup your money. I, I, I don't, um, I won't invest. I won't spend time with, um, or I didn't when I was doing this for a living, um, with companies that didn't agree. They may not know how exactly to go about doing it, but if they didn't get excited about doing it and want to do it, those were not companies that I wanted to, to participate with. You know, I, um, that, that I think is, is the lesson that people can take away, which is if you're not willing to do this market engineering category design work, um, either as the management team or you're not demanding it as an investor, then, um, you're, you're probably going to lend, you know, wind up in, um, the, the dustbin. And, uh, and I'm, I, I don't relish in that thought, but it's just the, the objective fact. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. Now, maybe let's circle back to uh, uh, enemies who become friends. So, <laughs> um, you know, I move out to Silicon Valley. I become the head of marketing at Vantive. You're the head of marketing at Siebel. And I remember as Siebel started to ascend in a way that we clearly were not. I remember this distinct experience, Bruce, going, hey, these guys are kicking our fucking asses and thinking, I'm not the guy whose ass gets kicked. I'm the guy who <laughs> kicks other people's asses. And I don't like this at all. And and you and Tom and the rest of the team at Siebel, I, I don't know about the rest of the management team at Vantive, but you took me to school on what it was like to be on the wrong side of a company who was designing a category, evangelizing that category, developing very forward-leaning products with what at the time was clearly the most beautiful uh, UX in the industry, um, compelling business model, rock star, direct sales force, Oracle style. So, you know, if you think about building a legendary company, a legendary product, and a legendary category, Siebel's executing across all dimensions in a way that clearly we at Vantive and clearly the other competitors were not doing and as a result, outgrew all of us and, and you know, took all the economics in the space. I mean, you did exactly at Siebel what we've been talking about here. And I was on the receiving end of it. So not loving you very much. Um, <laughs> and yet here we are so many decades later. And, you know, I, I treasure our relationship. I, I don't know how you feel on your end, but I'm, I'm curious how it looks to you to sort of, um, you know, there was a point in time where we didn't exactly love each other, at least from a business perspective. And now we sort of have a bromance or at least a, a little bit <laughs> yeah. of a bromance. Yeah. I think, well, I think what you're pointing out is kind of like old boxers, right? You know, the, they get together years later and, and, you know, you're, you're just trying to do your job with the company that you're associate where you're, you're, you are, um, um, passionate about making your company successful. You were, and I was, and we all are right. But otherwise, why are we, you know, I, I know we're doing a lot of it for a paycheck, but many people also are, want you know, passion to be put into the the equation as well. Um, I think the, the 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 for me, I think it's a recognition of respect for the people who you compete with and against. You know, at the time, you know, I had friends in 
in college I wrestled against uh, and that, you know, we're mortal enemies on the mat. And afterwards, it's like, Jesus, you were tough. You know, <laughs> you kicked my ass today or I, whatever. Um, I think it's just, I think it's the, um, uh, it's the art of competition and it, it forces us to be our best selves, right? It forces us to think the best, uh, operate the best. And if you are, um, if you are, uh, if you have a, I think a winning attitude, which is I want to win, I'm compelled to win. I want to, I want to, um, outthink, outsmart, out execute people, whether it's again, sports or whatever it is in business, et cetera. Um, I think it's having respect for your, your opponents and, uh, and not being, you know, some people kind of, I think, retreat into jealousy and, and et cetera and bitterness. Um, but I think the people who are, are really successful people in life, whether they're successful at a specific endeavor or not, uh, recognize that, uh, the other people they're competing against are, um, are pretty smart and, uh, pretty capable and they respect those efforts of, of those people. And that's, that's how I feel about it, Chris, is that, you know, it's, um, you know, we had a job to do that was, and we had to work on, you know, making sure that we, that we executed and we were rewarded for that. But, you know, after that, we kind of hang the gloves up and we take a look back and, and say, all right, um, th those were, <laughs> those might've been some rough times, but, uh, but I want to hang with the people, who the, the people who I work with, um, competed against, et cetera, because, uh, those people were, um, smart, capable, et cetera. And, um, and I enjoy, I enjoy being associated with them. Thank you for that. I, I think it's pretty mature, actually. I, I don't know how much it happens. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story in a sec. But, you know, as the loser in this one, um, you know, for me, I just respected the ass kicking. And, and to your point on wrestling or martial arts, I think it's hard for people who might not have had, you know, a boxing or wrestling or martial arts background to realize that after a sparring session or after a fight or a match, um, where you really pushed each other and maybe you even hurt each other, you know, there's, there are two combatants who are hugging each other because we went through something together and we made each other stronger and et cetera, et cetera. And in my case, I respected it. And I also said, and this is, this is, this is the, 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 the debt I owe you. I also said, that's never fucking going to happen to me again. <laughs> now, of course it did happen again, because you're not going to win them all, but I have won more than I've lost. And that, when somebody so royally kicks your ass and they do it in such a masterful way, I mean, just brilliant, you just go, well, um, fuck them and the horse they rode in on, and that's never happening again. And I'm going to take myself to a whole new level. And that, to me, was the gift of you guys beating the shit out of us. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I watch well, I don't know, lots of different sports. Um, I'm currently learning to become a, a race driver. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I got my racing license a couple yeah. of years ago. It's fun, right? Yeah, it is. Um, but, you know, out there, I mean, it's it's uh, highly competitive and, um, you know, bad things can happen, right? I mean, really bad things can happen. So, but afterwards, you know, you sit around and, and, um, and talk about, you know, what, what transpired, et cetera. And, and I think the people who are, um, again, the people who are again, winning, uh, the winning attitudes out there, uh, 
enjoy the competition, the art, the the you know the process of competing, and um, I always find it um, I, I don't know about distressful or not, but disappointing. Disappointing. I find it disappointing when you watch like UFC fights or other and and people um, yelling and screaming at each other, whatever. And to me, that just doesn't fit in my head. Um, to me, it's it's about hey, you go out there, you do your job, you're trying to win, they're trying to win. You know, afterwards you shake hands and, uh, you know, you don't generate personal attacks on people. And, uh, it, it, that just, that's never been a part of my personality. And, uh, so it doesn't fit in my head. So you ready for a funny story about this? Yeah. So when I was at Mercury, one of our competitors was this company CompuWare and they were the best possible competitor you could have because they were a shitty competitor. We beat them easily eight times out of 10, maybe nine, but. Even a blind squirrel gets a nut uh, every once in a while. And so they would beat us every once in a while. And so they were a perfect competitor because they were a threat. We had to pay attention. We had to stay on our toes. But the reality is we beat the shit out of them on every dimension. So the founder CEO of that company was a guy named Pete Carmanos. And um, he was very, very successful, even though he did not become the category king and we crushed him and they got purchased by BMC. He personally and many people at CompuWare were successful because it was a giant space, just like what happened in CRM. Anyway, long story longer, Pete Carmanos buys the California Hurricanes in the uh, National Hockey League. And as a Canadian, I grew up in Montreal and uh, loved the Montreal Canadiens as a kid. And even though I'm nowhere near the hockey fan I used to be, Still always a, a, a place in my heart for hockey. Anyway, long story even longer, California Hurricanes win the fucking Stanley Cup. So and I can't remember what I sent him. I can't remember if I sent him like Dom Perignon or some high-end scotch or what. But I sent him something nice and like a bunch of it. Mm-hmm. And I just put on in the note, hey, dear Pete, congratulations on winning the Stanley Cup. Very exciting. You know, wish you all the best kind of thing. Well, uh, and I didn't hear shit back from him ever. Zero, mm-hmm. nothing, never heard it and sort of forgot about it. Years later, I met some folks from CompuWare, somebody who said they were around when it showed up. And, you know, I sent it within the week after they won the Stanley Cup. So you can imagine if you're Pete, you know, this is a pretty great week for you, right? You're happy during this week, I would imagine. And uh, and apparently the vitriol that came out of Pete's mouth when I sent him a congratulations was significant. And so to your point, uh, he, he could not be happy that I, and I was not fucking with him. I was not trying to be an asshole. There was no double on there was nothing. I was legitimately saying, Hey, you know what? Congratulations. What an extraordinary achievement. And, uh, apparently he, uh, he was not pleased with, uh, with me or, or the gift. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we're not going to change those people. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Jesus. And so um, now you're out of an operating job and uh, you're back in more of your Obi-Wan phase of your career. And so um, tell me about what's up now. Well, uh, I've spent the, today uh, exactly one year that I um, that I retired um, from C3I. Congratulations, you know, Bruce. Yeah, thank you. And I decided I was going to take one to two years just to kind of decompress, sort of gather my thoughts about what, you know, what I wanted to do. Um, and I've been doing this racing thing, which I find to be intellectually and physically pretty compelling. So uh, I'm, I'm doing that, um, again, not necessarily very well, but I'm, I am doing it. 
Yeah, a lot of my, you know, friends, et cetera, you know, are kind of uh, shifting more to the couch and less to the, <laughs> less to the, you know, the external world. So I feel pretty good that I, that I'm relatively healthy and I can do these things and, um, and I'm enjoying that, that part of it. But I also knew, um, that in retirement, cause I tried retiring 20, 30 years ago. Um, I realized that you need to have these, these, uh, hobbies, things to do, things that keep you interested. So I, I made an effort to kind of pick two or three things that I thought would be compelling. Um, so I wasn't just sitting around the house. So I'm enjoying, uh, this racing thing. Um, I am considering adding in the, um, uh, you know, perhaps building this online course book. Uh, I am doing a few, um, uh, I don't sit on the board. I'm an advisory on advisory board to a couple of companies and um, I'm considering doing something a little more like that. I don't, you know, I'm not going to go back into doing sort of the, the Monday through Sunday, <laughs> uh, 6am to 10pm kind of work that I did before. But, um, but I do enjoy working with a few companies and um, you know, I'm open to sitting on, you know, one or two boards if um you know, if the, op- if the opportunity arises. So I'm, that's kind of what I'm doing right now. Um, you know, over the course of next year, um, we'll see how the racing thing goes. If it continues to be interesting and compelling, I'll continue to do it. And, um, in terms of doing these other things associated with, you know, work, um, or, you know, technology industry, um, again, I, I need to, I need to figure out what specifically I'd, I'd like to do and, um, and then commit to doing it. But I haven't done that yet. Excellent. I think you should take your time about that. Take as much time as you want. And uh, what kind of cars are you racing? So um, I have, um, I'm competing in something called the Ferrari Challenge, which is uh, everybody, it's a one design, one make car. So it's a Ferrari 488 Challenge Evo car, which basically means it's a factory built Ferrari built on the 488 chassis and concepts so it comes with a full roll cage and all the good stuff and there's a bunch of people who also participate in this and uh they race in five or six different uh racetracks around the u.s and one time in europe at the end of the at the end of each year so i think there's six programs six um races there and then uh and then also porsche i'm have a porsche cayman um 718 GT4 for anybody who knows about this stuff. <laughs> it's another factory built race car, a Porsche and, uh, racing with the Porsche club and Porsche national events. Um, so it's a, it's a ton of fun, two really different cars. Um, it's a really hard sport. So for those of you who've never done this kind of thing before, or, you know, you're just watching F1 or one of these things, um, I recommend going out to a track day with, 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 uh, you yep. know, with somebody who can go with you, an instructor and, uh, and do it. It's a, um, you're going to learn that, that you don't really know a lot about driving. <laughs> when Isn't it shocking it, when you first get is. your racing license, at least for yeah. me, I had that experience. It was like, wow, I don't know shit from Shinola about driving. I don't, e- I don't, I didn't even think about that. Driving is all about weight distribution. It's like, oh, well, of course you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's so many, so many insights. And, and the other thing I found for me, uh, so I got my license just because I wanted it, not because I wanted to race. But uh, in the little bit of racing that I've done, listen, I'm uh, big enough to admit, I don't know that I have the stomach for it. I mean, holy shit, 
those corners are no joke. And even a long straightaway, you know, where I got my license, they have a, a drag racing track. So one of the things we were able to do, and we were in Corvette Z06s. Uh-huh. I have a 2014 Shelby Cobra Mustang, and that's yes. kind of, yeah, that's what I like to drive. But we were in Z06s, which are amazing. Anyway, it was the first time in my life, Bruce, that I had the experience of getting in a high-powered vehicle like that on a straightaway. Obviously, no cops, no nothing. And they just say, put your foot on the throttle and see what happens. And when you have that experience and you get up to... I don't know how fast I was going because I couldn't not be looking at the road, but probably, you know, I don't know, 150 miles an hour, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you realize you could come flying off this fucking road like you need to be paying the fuck attention. And that's with nobody trying to catch you. Nobody around. Just a st- so in other words, what I learned is it's hard to get in a high powered vehicle, hit the throttle and just keep going and just hold on to that. Never mind race where guys are trying to pass you and there's corners and you got to figure out where the apex is and you got to get, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's, um, daunting, um, when you first do it. And even when you're doing it multiple times, you know, I still get those, you know, when you go into a competition you're talking about martial arts or wrestling or anything like that, you always get those butterflies in your stomach and you, I definitely get those. Um, you know, I have, uh, the Ferrari is capable of doing over 200 miles an hour. Fortunately, most of the tracks that you're on aren't long enough to get to that speed, but it's at Coda circle of the Americas in Austin. Um, you're up to 170, 175 miles an hour coming to a corner and you're breaking at you know, 150 yards <laughs> and you're supposed to turn. Uh, the, the people who I think are the most brave are the instructors who are willing to get in the car with you. And, uh, and have that happen, you know, so, uh, my, my hat goes off to them. I now don't need that. I now have a video. So they go along with me in the car in, in a vid- real time video and give me radio feedback about what's going on. Um, but like at Sonoma, you talk about if, I don't know if you ever driven it at Sonoma raceway it used to be called Sears point. Um, but the, on the front straight, uh, turn one, uh, coming out of turn 11, which is the last one. Uh, at you go, you're flat on the, on the pedal and, um, you're turning up the hill and you're still flat on the pedal. So you have to have a lot of faith that, uh, you're going to make that turn. And I, you know, that Laguna is another one, the front straight that comes over and down through the weather tech bridge. You're flat on that as well. And, uh, you get light cause you go over this hump going down. So yeah, I'd say there's a couple of soul searching moments that I've had. Um, and then you add cars. <laughs> That's you know, one that way are, of putting it. <laughs> the other way I think about it is, Hey, um, uh, you know, you don't really need to go for a, um, uh, colonoscopy after this thing. Cause you just, it, everything, whatever you got in there is coming out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think this is one of the reasons I, 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 um, I'm, I'm enjoying the process and, and I'm learning a lot. I am uh, actually last, uh, I'm going to a race this weekend at Sonoma, but a couple, a uh, week or so ago, I was at Thunder Hill, which is up in Willows, California, Northern California and, um, racing with club racing with Porsche and, um, and I ended up being in the pole position in pole one, um, for being, uh, the fastest car in qualifying. And, um, I was leading the race all t- up until I wasn't, which was, um, about <laughs> 20 minutes in when I spun because I was ahead <sighs> of people and you spun uh, out. I did. And 
that I spun because one moment of I looked in my rearview mirror to see if anybody was behind me, and um, nobody really was. But all it took was that tenth of a second of looking back and um, at a hundred and you know thirty miles an hour turning this corner, and it wasn't really much of a corner either. Um, and boom, spun. No damage, nothing. Didn't hit anything. You know, just spun around. But I lost two places and I came in P3. So, um, to your, you know, to your point, it's a, um, it's a technically demanding sport. If you're, you know, I think it it appeals to a lot of engineers. Um, there's a lot of, especially in Porsche, there's a lot of people who come from the technology industry, um, who own cars. One, they, many can afford to do it. Um, but many are just intellectually interested in doing it because there's a lot to the tuning of the car. Right. Um, and then there's the intellectual part of it, which is okay. Race strategy, race craft, uh, which is also there as well. So I'm I'm enjoying this, you know, and, you know, hopefully the, fortunately the cars are really, really good. And um, yeah, they no help. shit, they're really good. <laughs> yeah, they're really good. And they, they protect you really, really well. So it's incredible what they can do, right? I mean, you don't have an appreciation until you get them out on a track and you realize mm. how you can corner and how quickly you can break and how insanely responsive they are. And like, how a judging of distance is so different when you're in a vehicle like this because it'll do whatever you want. And so you can, you know, get closer to something that you might n- not otherwise. And, you know, there's just so many elements to it. And, and yeah, the bottom line is these vehicles are, in, it, it is truly mind boggling for a, uh, a layman to, to experience what these vehicles can do on a track. Yeah. yeah. I think, um, you know, modern technology, there's, these um a lot of different technology built into the car that that keeps you from doing bad things and then there's if you do a bad thing um they're built so well that most people at least these cars that i'm driving um you know i I was at indianapolis a few a month or so ago uh you know in the porsche nationals and um a guy in the rain we raced in the rain and um he lost his brakes and at 120 miles an hour just went flying into the tire wall and uh, not only did he walk away from that you know maybe with some bruises but he they repaired his car and he raced the next day so um yeah it's, it's crazy it, yeah you know i i i know that you you know we ride bikes <laughs> like cycle and mountain bike you know yeah. so i i've had some pretty severe injuries in uh, too, you know, cycling yeah uh, i feel safer doing this than i do um a lot of the competitive mountain biking i've done like sea otter and some of the other things where i've had some pretty serious falls um crashes so uh so yeah all things have their risk and you know knock on wood you know nothing's super serious will happen but um but learning right and i we have like one of my coaches is was um if you follow f1 lewis hamilton who's pretty decent driver i'd say uh-huh. um his uh his teammate um my coaches one of my coaches is his teammate so i learn i'm getting really really good coaching and trying to compress because you know i'm in my mid-60s so we don't have a lot of time to learn these guys started when in their you know in eight nine years old go-karting um i'm trying to learn Catch up. them yeah yeah to compress the amount of time so i can uh, that I can be a legitimate competitor out there. So it's a, t- it's a ton of fun. And I got to ask you the seminal question, because when you say you're racing Ferraris and Porsches, it's sort of like a guitar player says I'm playing Gibsons and, and, and mm. Fenders. So if you had to pick one. Um, yeah, well, 
the Ferrari is just kind of um, uh, just this amazing experience because it's kind of, I mean, it's the whole Ferrari kind of lifestyle stuff, right? That kind of goes along with it. So that's pretty amazing. And the car itself is just an amazing piece of work. Um, I, I think, you know, for me, long-term, probably I, I'd stick with the Porsche because I can actually work on the car and uh, I cannot work on the Ferrari. I mean, it's it takes a team of, I mean, they have on the, the race team I'm with, a lot of Italian mechanics who come over from Italy to, to you know, to be part of your team. So um, that's not an option for me. I'm, I'm not going to be working on the Ferrari. So I would pick the Porsche simply because I can be actively involved in the, in, in the, you know, keeping it up a little more hands-on. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, Dr. Cleveland, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, I, I, w- I would just say one thing that that we didn't talk about a lot, but um, really prompted this conversation, and that is, I would encourage the, the companies who the people who listen to this, uh, you know, don't hire that SDR team, don't start putting in, you know, all, you're putting a ton of of cash capital into any of that demand gen work um, until and unless you have some evidence that you have uh, um, either that you have a legitimate a category that you've created or that you know it's emerging. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I, I would just strongly discourage people from doing that. And, uh, you know, if, if you learned anything from this particular podcast between myself and, and Christopher, I think the, the takeaway is, you know, trust the market engineering category design work, you know, give it six, 12 months at least to, uh, to take effect. And um, the odds of your company being, successful are going to be dramatically improved. Um, and you know, that's, I think that's the parable to take away. Amen. Hallelujah, Bruce. Thank you so much. I deeply, deeply appreciate you. And, uh, I can't wait till our next conversation. Absolutely. Thanks brother. Thanks Chris. Well, there he is my buddy, the legendary Bruce Cleveland, best-selling author of traversing the traction gap, multi-time, multi-billion dollar company and category designer, investor, and all the other amazing shit that Bruce has done and continues to do in his career. All right. uh, We would like to thank, we'd like to thank you, of course. Thank you for your time and attention. It means the world to all of us here. Uh, Our friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org are the nonprofit that helps people dream, plan, and live their best lives. If you want to make a difference for others today, Go to OneLifeFullyLive.org and crack open your wallet. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you need an assistant to help scale you, somebody who's empowered by technology, but who's a real person, and who'll never get near you, they've been social distancing before that was even a thing, visit Bottleneck.online today. My friends at Atrenet, A-T-R-E.net, have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Now is a great time to do a rapid relaunch and create a legendary new website for your company. Check out atre.net. My friends at shakeology.com are the incredible. This this stuff is incredible. You know what it really is? It's like drinking dessert. It's vegan, organic, legendary dessert that happens to be good for you. Check out shakeology.com today. And I like, with my Shakeology, my Malibu milk, um, flax milk that is absolutely legendary. And it's the first milk company ever created by a mom. Check out MalibuMilkWithAY.com and use it in your Shakeology. 
All right. I need to remind you that today's information is brought to you solely for your informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking and radically legendary results. All rights do remain perturbed. Don't forget to go to CategoryPirates.com and subscribe today. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Jamie J and Sarah Knox do legendary technical execution and build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. Uh, the Bobus Brothers, RJ and EX, do our web development. And Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. Don't forget that Joan Jett was right. Listen to Katie Lang. Uh, the sage words of Walt Disney, who says, all our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vlad. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.